Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And we have a podcast for you that will give you a little food for thought. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, the tech of food, food tech and science. And uh, it's all going to be science, tech, and food. And uh, fortunately, both Lauren and I have already eaten before we came into the podcast room, or else it would also become an episode where we just say, I'm really hungry the now. The technology of cannibalism. Yeah. I would totally eat Jonathan's eyeballs. Yeah, yeah. I don't even have my glasses to protect me right now. So, um, you know... Back in the day, the I mean, day like way back in the day, like even, like like the cave day. Yeah, even before I was born, Lauren. Back in that day, food science was essentially all about sending out an unlucky caveman to try and eat a particular mushroom and find out if that's going to make him if, if it's for recreation or for nutrition or right, for sure. dying or for dying. Yeah, one of the one three. of the three. Right. If 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 he comes back and talks about how the dinosaurs were jamming out to uh, to fish, then obviously that would have been in the recreation category. Uh, if he said that was very tasty, that would clearly be food. And if he didn't come back at all, well, it could well, be one of several things, but I, possibly but means the probably we shouldn't eat those mushrooms. Yeah. yeah so today, <clears throat> food science is uh, is more about well, it's still about safety. But it's also about nutrition. It's about uh, the taste of food. It's about the presentation, preparation, and preservation of food. Mm-hmm. Keeping, and, keeping it fresher longer to right, get to you. Right. And food science really right now, when we when we use that term, it tends to be used in relation to keeping food fresh and safe longer so that we can get it from and one in massive quantities another. right yes. in, in an industrial sense is right. usually what food science means although we wanted to point out that all cooking is really technically food science yeah. because it's physics and chemistry yeah is what makes it go in fact uh, one of the shows that we talked about before we came in here to podcast was uh alton brown's good eats which really he he focused very much on the science angle of cooking and explained what the food was going through when you would actually cook to explain you know why food comes out a certain way when you prepare it one way versus another. Right, right. Uh, kind of, kind of, you know, if, if you've never seen the show, A, go, go find it. It's terrific. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's very Mr. Wizard. And, yeah, um, Mr. Wizard meets Julia Child. It's, it's great. <laughs> it's great. And that, I mean that but, in, yeah, completely yeah. He's, as a compliment. He's more, Alton Brown is more of a scientist than a uh, culinarian. And, um, you know, self-admittedly, he's learned about cooking through his love of science. And yeah. so. As books are very much the same way. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's all about chemistry, biology, physics, engineering. It's all about making sure that the the processes you are going through are keeping the food in its most nutritional, tasty, and safe format as possible. But we've kind of developed beyond that. I mean, beyond the just the here's what happens when you introduce eggs to a hot surface. Uh, you know, we've gotten to a point now where We've got some mad scientists getting involved in the preparation of food, like crazy. I, I just imagine these guys in in their uh, kitchens, which look a lot like Doctor Evil's laboratory, and just cackling <laughs> as they as they move one molecule of of substance into a, a vast vat of boiling liquid, and it just poof, the smoke comes up, and then you you know. It's one of those things where if you get a whiff of it, you do that little cartoon thing where you float through the air following the odor <laughs> The delicious trail. odor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
that's kind of what always goes through my mind. But uh, I, I don't think that's exactly what happens. But um, but but there are some really cool things being done in uh, in a, a in food science uh, and B in molecular gastronomy. Right, right. Like like one of the things we talked about in food science. One of the things that perplexes us is the whole cake mix thing, right? Cake mix. It's science cake, guys. The fact that you can take this this box of, of questionable carbohydrate and flavoring substance and add like oil and then it's cake. <laughs> I don't I don't think that that I this this is something that I'm not positive that we should be eating as human people. I'm not sure if it counts as food. But the fact that it exists is some kind of feat of chemistry well, that I do not personally understand. When you think about when you think about the actual, you know, making cake from scratch, right. right? If you were to do it yourself, a lot of that includes a large number of dry materials, right? You know, flour and sugar and that kind of stuff. Oh, it's, it, it, so, it's, it's a basic flour and, and leavening agent, really. The, the the leavening agent and the um the the protein. And the fats that that go into a traditional by hand cake are what is going to make these chemical reactions to make something rise. Right, right. So, so when you think about it that way, putting all of it in a box isn't quite as mysterious. Although you might say, like, what about the eggs? And uh, yeah, a lot of these these cake mixes that don't require you to add eggs have dried eggs in them, in fact, to the point or where... Or some other kind of powdered protein right. source that will have a similar effect. Right. You know, so, some mixes require you to add fresh eggs, mm-hmm. uh, and some do not. And there were lots of uh, interesting theories on why the uh, the kind that did not require you to add eggs didn't sell so well. One of the theories, which I think is, uh, or maybe I should say hypotheses, which I think is a little apocryphal, is that... Uh, in the 1940s, when cake mixes were first being introduced, <laughs> by the way, this is all based upon the, the theory and hypothesis. I, it's gonna start sounding really misogynist, and I wanna <laughs> apologize, but cast yourself back into 1940s America, and here's how it goes. Alright. The thought process was, the housewife, she needs her, her world to be, uh, efficient so that she can do the most with the least amount of time because she's caring for a busy family. Her kids are in school and her hubby is off bringing home the bacon. Like I which said, she has to cook. As yeah, which she, she has gets to cook. Home. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so the, you know, cake mixes were thought of as being this great time saver. However, there was this, you know, the hypothesis was that women did not want to buy the cake mixes that didn't require you to add eggs, not because of anything different, any kind of perceivable change in quality, but because they felt like they weren't doing enough Enough. work. So they had cake guilt. Yeah, like this isn't real food because it didn't require any real effort on my part. Therefore, this is bad food. That was the hypothesis. Now, from what I've read, it seems like that's kind of apocryphal because the sales don't really reflect that. And also that a lot of the the ones that didn't require you to to add eggs into the mix had dried egg in them, which meant that the taste was a little eggy. Mm-hmm. So maybe that is an apocryphal story. But anyway, it's interesting to me to think that we could make creating a, a, a meal so easy that we would feel guilty about how little effort it required on our part. Me? Man, I don't care. Huh. If, if I open up the fridge and there's a full meal there, I'm just like, bonus! 
I think I, I think that, that that translates into you know um, with uh, with frozen meals and stuff like that. I think that some people feel bad serving those oh, to their I families. I, I mean, yeah, yeah, there, there's there's a nutrition issue in that. I mean, if you're serving cake, it's cake. You know, no one's really eating that for the nutritional value. At least I hope not, guys. No, don't do that. Don't um, because the cake is a lie. The cake is a lie. Yeah. So let's talk about molecular gastronomy now. Now, where did this idea come from? All right. So there were these there were these two dudes. Okay. Um. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm sorry, molecular gastronomy people. These these people were um. It was it was a, a physical chemist named Hervé Tees and a uh, professor of physics named Nicholas Curdy, who got together and it, they they'd separately been experimenting with food and things for years and years and years. Curdy was a Jewish physicist who left Europe back in the 1930s during the rise of the Nazi movement and came to the U.S. to work on the nuclear weapons projects at Los Alamos. Wow. Yeah, so from there to uh, molecular gastronomy, huh? But he, but he got interested after after the project was over. The story goes that um, that he, like many of his other colleagues, wound up really wanting to get into something more creative. Wow! And and so uh, he he started getting into it. And and one time, supposedly, he was. Uh, Demoing how to make a souffle at the Royal Institution in London, which right. is which is a scientific institution. Sure. Um, this was this was in the 1980s sometimes, and he said, "I think it's a sad reflection on our civilization that while we can and do measure the temperature in the atmosphere of Venus, we don't know what goes on inside our souffles." <laughs> wow. Okay. Um. So so he was he was passionate about this, and um, uh, Tease was the sort of guy who reportedly used a lab ultrasound box to emulsify his mayonnaise. So this is the kind of people we're working with. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. I can just imagine, you know, walking. This makes me think of any science fiction film where you walk into the engineer's lab and there's this really advanced piece of equipment that always turns out to be the thing that the engineer's using to make his coffee. Something along those lines. You know what I'm talking about? It's kind yeah, of a yeah. stereotypical thing. No, absolutely. I, and so supposedly Tease got into, uh, got into food. Like I said, he was a uh, physical chemist after he, he royally messed up a souffle recipe by adding all the egg yolks at the same time. So As opposed to one at a time. To one at a time or two yeah. at a time, the way that the recipe book said. But he was like, whatever, physics, and just did it, and, and it it failed. So then he, he said, well, why is that? Why is it doing this thing? Mm-hmm. And how can we determine what is the actual process that's going on so that we can make food in a way that is going to be superior, the best way to make whatever dish we want to make? Mm-hmm. And, you know, anyone who who really enjoys food, I mean, not... Not just like I'm hungry, I need to eat, but someone who who really enjoys the experience of dining and they like that uh, experience to be rich and not necessarily the food is rich, but they 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 like it to be uh, a really um, uh, intense rewarding. experience, a rewarding uh-huh. experience. Sure. Yeah, then this is the sort of stuff that they get really interested in. Uh, they got interested on it on a molecular level, which is you know the molecular gastronomy is where that comes from. So first of all. To really understand this term, first we got to talk about what is gastronomy. So gastronomy is the art of selecting, preparing, serving, and enjoying fine food. So a gastronomic experience would be one where you are having this fine food that's been prepared in a specific way, perhaps by an expert chef, and you know it's 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 it becomes an event. It's not just a meal or just nourishment. Mm-hmm. It's beyond that. Uh, there's there's also um. Uh, 
a very classic cookbook, if you've never heard of it, is called the, uh, the, the La Russe Gastronomique, which was originally published in 1938 and is this um, kind of encyclopedia of cooking technique. It's actually very dense to parse if you've never, if you're not really familiar with cooking, but it's like a physics manual. Yeah. And yeah. I find that fascinating that this has gone back that long of, of people just describing a method rather than the kind of breezy blog-like thing that we have going on in cookbooks today, which is right. also fabulous and gets gets newcomers into the industry. But right, it doesn't have the same level of precision. And part of that is that you know preparing food is a very it's very difficult to be precise because while you can have certain materials and and have very specific measurements, like you could you could say, all right, add. X number add, of... Add, add five grams of flour. Exactly. Add one gram of sugar. When it comes to add one egg, not all eggs are created equal. Mm-hmm. So even if you are to follow the exact same recipe as closely as you possibly can, if you have ingredients that fall into that kind of category where the quality of the ingredient itself is going to be a little different every single time... All that you means... can do is go and yell at a chicken, and really <laughs> that chicken does not care. Uh, trust me, I have spent <laughs> way too much time yelling at chickens. It is a waste of time. They they find it confusing, and the eggs come out scrambled. So um, yeah, it's just it's just an odd thing. It's one of those things about cooking is that even if you follow the the procedure exactly the same way two times in a row, there are enough variables there depending upon what you're preparing that your outcome can be a little to a lot different. Mm-hmm. But uh, this was all about trying to really boil that down. And in fact, there are some critics of molecular gastronomy who go so far as to say that it takes the fun out of it. And make it a science instead of an art or or that even or even that it's it's largely meaningless because of situations like this, where you have ingredients that aren't always going to be exactly the same. Like, you know, when you're working with chemistry, if you're if you're using pure chemicals, you're going to get that same reaction every time. In a lab situation, time. and you're being careful. Right, and, right. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you're avoiding contaminants. Then every time you do the same experiment, the same uh, procedure, it should come out exactly the same. With cooking, it's a little different because it's not that exact. And some people have argued that you've taken an art and tried to turn it into a science when really it belongs somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, molecular gastronomy specifically is the study of the actual physical and chemical processes that food undergoes during preparation. So it was originally called a uh, uh, molecular and physical gastronomy or physical and molecular gastronomy. Yeah, essentially um, shortened just to molecular. Mm-hmm. Uh, gastronomy. The, the, to- the coin, the, the coin was termed. The term was coined <laughs> in, uh, in about 1988 or 1989. I'm having the same kind of day, Lauren. <laughs> I, I really am. Uh, yeah. And, and it's it's interesting because when it was first developed, it was even more of a scientific approach. Like almost clinical. They they were going super nerdy with it, um, which I love. I you know I'm, I'm certainly not complaining about that, but but they were really breaking things down to their very physical chemistry elements right. and uh, and being extremely precise and, and doing things like like using lab ultrasound boxes to right. make their emulsifications. Right. And eventually they kind of loosened that up a little bit and acknowledged that individual expression and artistic uh, uh, and artistic merit play a part in pre- preparing food. It's mm-hmm. not just you know, let's don the gloves and the goggles and get into the laboratory. <laughs> right. Uh, and also beyond that, you know, I was mentioning the, the ingredients issue. Another issue is the equipment that you have available to you, right? Like, And we're going to talk more about the equipment in, in the second half of this podcast. But, for example, if your very specific scientific procedure 
involves heating a particular mixture to a, a, a very specific temperature and keeping it there, that can be tricky with a lot of kitchen equipment. It mm-hmm. all depends on the kind of cook, uh, cook surface you have. Oh, right, you know, right. whether or not you can have that level of precision, you might be able to get within a couple of degrees and that can mean the difference between success and failure. Yeah. Uh, by, by the way, speaking of this, if, uh, if you find that things don't come out of your oven quite the way that you think they should, most, uh, most home kitchen ovens are wildly inaccurate. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very worthwhile getting a probe thermometer or, or other independent thermometer to check out the temperature on that. Just kitchen tips from Lauren. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, uh, it's, uh, I, I, one of the things that Alton Brown and his show always said was, you know, make sure you have some sort of thermometer. He had, he had a lot of infrared ones where you could just mm-hmm. point it at the food and find out what the temperature was. Yeah. But he had other ones too, like probe thermometers as well and everything to, to kind of give you that, that idea so that you would know specifically, uh, what you're dealing with. What you're dealing with. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, the, the, like I said, not an exact science unless you have someone coming in and calibrating your cookware all the time. <laughs> it's probably not going to work out that way. Anyway, so what do molecular gastronomy people, what, what are these gastronomers extraordinaire? What did they concern themselves with? Well, they mostly concern themselves with the three main groups of materials that are in chemistry, which are elements, compounds, and mixtures. Okay, so an element is a fundamental element, right? That is the basic unit there that can't be broken down. So, for example, if I, if I, you know, just an example of, of any kind of element, Iron. Iron is an element. You don't break iron down into something less than iron other than iron atoms. And you could break atoms down, but then it's not iron anymore. Right. <laughs> um, then you have compounds. These are materials that have properties that are distinct from the individual elements that combine to make the compound. But those elements are combined. They're locked together now. So this is sort of the molecule level. So oh, water, for example. Exactly. Water has different properties than hydrogen and oxygen, which when they're combined, make water different properties there. Mm-hmm. And then you have uh, mixtures and mixtures are a combination of substances that aren't held together chemically. So that means you could actually mechanically separate them. So again, let's say, um, let's say that you can have a mixture that also has a compound in it. So let's say for some reason you have iron filings and salt. You could mechanically separate the iron filings from the salt. That's mm-hmm. a mixture there. It's not chemically bonded. Uh, salt, by the way, is a compound because that's sodium and chloride. These are very different elements. Uh, sodium, of course, is a, a metal that can react very violently with water. Uh, chloride, not the most lovely chemical to come into contact with. It is quite toxic, but when they are bound together into sodium chloride, that's They're table salt. Super tasty. Yeah. Makes food better. Uh, so anyway, uh, food dishes are colloidal systems. And I know all of you out there know this. You're all thinking, Jonathan, come on, this is cooking 101, but I'm going to go through it anyway. No, really, a colloid is a material composed of tiny particles of one substance that are dispersed but not dissolved in another substance. So here are the different colloidal systems in food. Ready? Write this down. There'll be a test later. (laughs) There's foam. So all of our baristas out there know this one. That's gas dispersed in a liquid. So... Like whipped cream? Whipped cream, exactly. Uh, then there's solid foam. That's gas dispersed in a solid. Like a marshmallow? 
Yep. A marshmallow, as Spock would say. There's gel, which is a solid dispersed in a liquid, such as gelatin. So, you know, jello, that kind jello. of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an emulsion, which is liquid dispersed in another liquid. Uh, mayonnaise would be an example of an emulsion. And then there's a solid emulsion, which is a liquid dispersed in a solid, and that's like butter or cheese, some of the tastiest colloidal systems as far as I am concerned. And in some food dishes, you're going to encounter more than one colloidal system, which creates what is called a complex disperse system or CDS, like ice cream, which is uh, has solids, liquids, and gases in at least two colloidal states. So you've got uh, in the solids, you have... Uh, uh, you got some fats, you've got some milk proteins. In the liquid, you got uh, the water. In the gases, you have air. And all of this comes together when you mix it together to make a delicious, frosty treat, which is especially appreciated in the summer days in Atlanta. Ice, ice cream is actually really chemically complex. It's it's fascinating that, you know, with, with four ingredients and a, a bag of ice and salt, you can make some in your kitchen. So, it's guys, crazy. the next time you are wandering around, you see a little kid enjoying ice cream on a hot summer day, walk up to that little kid, point at the little kid and scream, you're eating science! And then tell them that Stuff You Should Know told you to do that. <laughs> stuff You Should Know. Remember that. It's really important. Okay. Uh, so the, the molecular gastronomy guys, they started s- describing colloidal systems using formulas, like mathematical formulas. And, uh, you know, like they could break down something like a sauce into a specific formula and explain the molecular makeup and dispersion processes to create that sauce. So... You would take a sauce and you would analyze it. You'd say, all right, well, here are the molecules that go into this. This is the, these are the ingredients that make this sauce. Uh, here's the, um, the ratio, how many of one versus another. Here's what kind of, um, of substance it was. If it was a liquid or a solid or a gas before it was put together to make this sauce. Uh, and here's the order it would go in. And you would break that down into like, it, it would look like something that came right out of an algebra book. I mean, or a trigonometry book. You look at this and you're like, it looks like a proof or something. Is this geometry? And no, it was cooking. Um, and in fact, uh, uh, there was a, one of the, one guy in, in molecular gastronomy took a look at all the sauces used in French cooking. Uh, teas again, it was. Teas. Mm-hmm. There's something like, oh, several hundred different sauces explain, uh, described within French cooking, but, Tease said that all classic sauces belong to 23 groups of colloidal processes and that using his system, you could create new sauces that were never recorded before just by adding in different colloidal processes while making your sauce. So in other words, first he said, huh, the French, not that big. Those hundreds and hundreds of sauces could be (laughs) boiled down to 23. And then not only that, but you can actually make a brand new sauce using my method. It's in 1995, too. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, te- technically the French uh, boil it down to four sauce bases. But yes, his 23 is a little bit more precise. Yeah, yeah. And then when you get down to the specific types of sauces, that's when you get to the hundreds. So right. it's not not that, you know, four bases or whatever can then lead to uncounted sauces in France. That's one of those things that I always regretted about English history was that the French never really had after the Norman invasion, a really successful invasion of England, because English food really could have used more sauce. <laughs> hey, um, I, I happen to like English food very much. 
Oh well, there's there's nothing nothing wrong. I'll with, be sure to boil you a turkey with after a beef the... and bacon pie. Come on, come on, beef and bacon pie. We've all watched Game of Thrones, and we all know that the food there is probably right. the most important part. Horses heart, horses heart from the beheadings. <laughs> yes, beheadings and food. <laughs> Sounds like a red wedding to me. Too soon. Too, Too soon. soon. All right, sorry. All right, so let's talk a bit about some of the techniques that are used in molecular gastronomy. So this is beyond. Beyond just distilling food down to the actual scientific processes and, and, and the amounts you need to create stuff, they've started to create new techniques to give new gastronomic experiences to diners. Now, this is the crazy stuff that you might have seen on something like Top Chef or one of those other programs, or maybe if you've eaten at one of those super fancy or trendy restaurants. WD-50 um, or... Um now, there's a whole bunch, right? I mean, like, even in Atlanta, we have a few. But, mm-hmm. you know, there are other places like New York, L.A., San Francisco that have amazing restaurants where you've got these real innovators. Also, Chicago. I shouldn't leave out Chicago. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Miami has a couple of good ones, too. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So one of them, uh, one of the ones I liked a lot was spherification, <laughs> which is making flavor beads. <laughs> so... These are little beads that are meant to, to you know, you, you scoop them up in whatever food you have, and they contain flavor in them. And when you put them in your mouth, they burst and release flavor. So it's like a little flavor bubble. It's it's like a little uh, solid sauce container. It, yeah. it, it usually winds up looking like caviar and um, contains whatever you want it to contain. And usually these are created through some kind of gelatin process or yeah. um, other starch to liquid conversion. Right. So you might use some sort of um, chemical composition that uses something like calcium chloride and alginate, which will create this kind of gelatin sort of uh, substance that will provide the shell of whatever flavor you have. You then have the flavor mixture itself in something like a syringe. And then you would dip the syringe into the gel and very gently uh, inject the flavor in. And then you could shape the gel around the flavor. And that's where you get the the flavor bead. And you could actually shape it in different ways if you wanted to. But, uh, yeah, it's this idea that you can introduce flavors in a way so that the textures of the food hit your mouth at a particular time and then the flavor releases at a different time. So it almost becomes like a theater event as opposed to just eating a meal. Like, oh, right, like- right. A lot of the idea of molecular gastronomy is, is, is taking these Especially classic dishes, you know, flavors that we all know and love and um, breaking them down to their component experience parts yeah. and and kind of putting them back on the plate in a way that you wouldn't expect anyone to to have. Done. Right. And another one is presenting textures in a way that you wouldn't have expected before. For example, uh, flash freezing. Mm-hmm. Flash freezing is all about freezing the surface of food uh but allowing the the center of the food to remain in liquid format for example so that way again you have this different experience it's it's solid on the outside liquid on the inside you take a bite and then you get that gushy and liquid. it just kind of melts yeah yeah so th- this is often used in desserts mm-hmm. and a lot of sweets use this um and we will talk about some of the cool tools used to create this in the second half yeah uh, and uh, one of the most important uh, agents used in molecular gastronomy is methyl cellulose, which congeals in hot water, and then it becomes liquid again if it cools. Um, it's also important to have emulsifiers, which 
That's what allows you to uh, disperse one kind of liquid into another kind of liquid. Like if you wanted to, if you wanted to actually emulsify oil in water, uh, that's what you would you would need emulsifiers for that. I mean, you can also shake it real good, but yeah, um, but you know, oil and water don't mix; they'll separate out. Yeah. So that's why you have to have these emulsifiers to help do that. Uh, like uh, soy uh, lecithin, I think is how you say it, and xanthan gum. Xanthan gum is the one that everyone talks about. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've I've read uh, interviews with uh, uh, these people who who do molecular gastronomy work, and they're like, xanthan gum is is that's like my most important tool. <laughs> um, and another one that they talk about a lot is transglutenamase. Oh, boy. Too many syllables. Uh, but anyway, this is a chemical that makes proteins stick together. And uh, one thing that chefs use this for is to prepare meat dishes so that they can uh, uh, remove, for example, all the fat from a steak and then uh, using uh, this to kind of glue the steak together to hold it together or even using it to form things like special kinds of noodles from material like shrimp. So it's, uh, again, one of those things where you are able to prepare different types of food in different formats than you necessarily would, would or that you, you would normally run into uh, to give a, a new or unique dining experience. Um, it's also really helpful when you want to cook meat in a, at a particular pace because this is, again, another one of those issues. Like, like I said, you know, no two eggs are exactly the same. Meat, when you have a cut of meat, it, um, it's not all even all the way through. Like it's, you know, it could be thicker in some places. It could be more dense in some places. Mm-hmm. It might have a, a different, different pockets of, um, of, of water or fats yeah. or. So that makes it more, uh, it makes it tricky to cook it exactly the way you want it all mm-hmm. the way through, which is why, uh, these, this kind of chemical is really useful because it can let you create a more uniform piece of, uh, meat. To cook, so that way you get exactly the way you want it all the way through. Um, all right. Well, you know what? That kind of brings us up to the halfway mark. We're going to take a quick break, but then we'll be talking more about some of the technology and gear that you can encounter, including some of the, the stuff that you probably are familiar with, the, the regular uh, average kitchen stuff. And then we're going to work our way up to mad scientist level. But before we do that, let's take a quick break break to thank our sponsor, Netflix. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com slash techstuff and sign up now. And one thing you might consider watching, since we're talking about food in this episode, uh, there's a documentary called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. It's all about a sushi chef who is known for a... Uh, a restaurant that has 10 seats in it. It's a $300 a plate restaurant. By the time you finish watching this documentary, I guarantee you are going to be starving for sushi. It is amazing. So check that out. Remember, this is subject to availability. So check in your area to make sure it's available. And uh, go to that website, www.netflix.com slash techstuff and sign up. All right, we're back. Well, uh, let's talk about some of the tech and gear that you would need to uh, to get some cooking done. Yeah, you know? uh, on on the basic end, you know, uh, stoves. Yeah, a lot tops. of a lot of them have 
A lot of us have them. Yeah. It, it's really important for most of my preparation. Uh, a, a lot of the time they come in a uh, electric or gas range. Right. So, uh, of course, with gas, you're, you're cooking with, with flames. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, this is one of those things where, you know, you have to figure out what, where on that range the certain levels of heat are, right? Yeah, because you give it more fuel, which is which is hotter, yeah. basically. Yeah, but <laughs> or, or but less, but, but that's kind of arbitrary. Yeah, not, not terribly specific, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have electric ranges, which aren't really that much better. In fact, that you could argue they don't heat nearly as evenly. Uh, your your traditional on, electric range, d- depending on uh, the quality of the heating element, um, yeah. w- which is which is directly heating um, the pan. Yeah, that you're using. essentially what you're using here is resistance, right? Mm-hmm. Like we know that when you run an electric current through a conductor, the conductor's resistance means that some of that energy gets converted into heat. So with things like cooktops, that's great. That's exactly what we want. That's the purpose of this. So the resistance is high. You get a lot of uh, and you got a lot of surface area. That's why you've got the coils there, uh, as opposed to just you know a flat surface. Um, and then you end up uh, getting this um, this uh, heated element. So that's what you use to actually transfer heat from the stove to the cookware, which has preferably uh, probably some sort of food in it. One would think you're not just heating up your pots and pans. I hope uh, that would be bad. Well, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily hurt the potter pan unless it has a fancy coating on it, in which case it would. Yeah, so. I just don't. I don't. don't I don't do see that. any reason put, to do it. Put food yeah. in your pots put and your pans, food. kid. Yeah, yeah, come on. That, yeah, make it yeah. There's no pork up in the pan. I'm having a little Creedence Clearwater Revival moment. <laughs> All right. So, but then there are other, like, more kind of science fiction-y ways of transferring heat uh, on a cooktop, like induction cooking. This this is really cool. It's a uh, or really warm as the case may be. I'm Zing. punning for you now. This is a terrible development. Yeah. Um, I'm just gonna sit back and watch. <laughs> and induction cooktops use electromagnets to um to heat iron or steel cookware directly. Right, right. There's a, a circuit inside the cooktop that has an alternating current, which is very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to have an alternating current because what that generates is a fluctuating electromagnetic field. Mm-hmm. Now, anyone who's been listening to tech stuff for a while knows that there's a, you know, you can induce electricity to flow through a material by uh, introducing a, a fluctuating magnetic field. That's the electro and the magnet part there. Mm-hmm. You know, electricity can create a creates a magnetic field and a magnetic field if it's fluctuating can create a flow of electricity through a conductor. So that's what you've got. You've got a circuit that's creating an alternating current inside the cooktop. That alternating current, when it comes into contact with the right type of induction cooking cookware, a, a ferrous yes, material, ferrous material, can induce current to flow, and uh, this is all part of Faraday's law. Whether it's cookware or not, Faraday's law really just in, involves the electromagnetic uh, effect here. Um, so the coils in the induction cooktop generate this magnetic field. The ferromagnetic potter pan placed on the cooktop will uh, induce about a volt of electricity so it's not a not a uh, a huge uh, amount of voltage obviously uh, and it's right along the bottom of the surface of the cookware but that ac current is fluctuating very quickly to generate that molecular movement necessary to heat up the cookware itself so the cookware begins to heat up even though the cooktop itself is not getting warm. It, it generates that, that resistance heat that we were talking about directly in the pan itself. Right. So the heating element does not get warm. Um, uh, if, if you put glass or, say, a person down on top of that heating element, 
it would not heat. Right. That unless item. unless you're made out of ferrous magnetic material, in which case you're going to You've got be, bigger problems. Yeah, you're probably part of the Avengers and I bet there are aliens attacking. So you've got other things to worry about apart from the souffle. Yes. So uh and they do tend to heat up faster than electric stovetops. They're and they, they're they're more energy efficient, certainly. And they, they usually are at least they're advertised to offer more fine tuning capabilities that you can get it closer to a specific temperature as opposed to uh, medium, medium high, high, <laughs> right. burnt. These have been these have been classically used in um, in industrial kitchens and in, uh, in professional kitchens. Um, sure. that, although they are beginning to be released for home use, and by home I mean people who have a lot more money than I do in my yeah. home. Yeah, but, there um, there are and you can get an induction cooktop for your home right now, mm-hmm. but it is expensive. Um, yes, or at least more expensive than the classic cooktops that we know, like gas and, and electric cooktops. Um, there are other ways of heating up food. I mean, we we did a full episode of Tech Stuff about microwaves back in the day and about how uh, microwaves were kind of an, an, an accidental invention uh, that occurred. Uh, right. Uh, it was some, someone was standing near some kind of microwave element. It was and, a uh, microwave antenna. And, uh, and, and realized that the chocolate bar in his pocket had melted. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and was like, A, maybe I should wear some kind of protective right. clothing, and B, huh, this could have applications. Right. And then uh, a few decades later, there's a microwave in every home. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, microwaves essentially are using electromagnetic radiation, specifically microwaves, to excite polarized molecules that make them vibrate. So liquid, for example, water inside uh, your food, starts to vibrate very, very, very quickly as it's excited by this radiation. And because of the vibration, you know, that, that it generates heat and that's where you get the heat from microwaves. Um, uh, you know, it's, again, it's, it's something that, uh, the radiation itself is making the food heat up, not, it's not applying heat from an external source and heating the food that way. Uh, so food is cooking from the inside. <laughs> But those are your basic ways of heating food up. There are also some other cool ways of doing it. Uh, yeah, there's um, in infrared grilling is is mm. a thing that has become a thing recently. I like a this good was... infrared <laughs> steak. <laughs> These infrared cooking surfaces um, uh, use an electric or a gas element to heat a a solid ceramic, usually, okay. um, to a certain temperature that will make it radiate far infrared waves directly into food that is sitting on some kind of uh, uh, element nearby. Wow. So you're not heating a pot that's heating the food. You're heating the food. Gotcha. The way that you would in a, in a microwave, except with near, with far infrared waves instead of microwaves. microwaves. Right. Interesting. Well, and then there's also uh, immersion circulators, also mm-hmm. known as sous vide machines. Right. And uh, these are these are fun. One of my friends actually has one, so so we've played around with it a little bit. Yeah. So here, here's the the principle behind sous vide. You may have heard that term before and heard people talk about it. It's a a way of of cooking foods, specifically meat, but not necessarily only meat, mm-hmm. so uh, that it cooks thoroughly but uh, retains all the delicious moisture and juices. Savide is French for under vacuum because uh, vacuum sealed pouches are often used, although right. they don't necessarily need to be. For example, if you wanted to um, uh, drop a whole egg, uh, you know, shell and all, into a uh, sous vide immersion bath, right? You could you could soft boil an egg for hours. Yeah. So the way this works is that the the water is heated to a very specific temperature, very precise temperature by that immersion heating element. Yeah. There's a there's a heating element that there's there there. Several parts to this, right? You've got the pot that holds the water. A tank, really. 
you've got a, um, a essentially a tube that pulls the water through. There's a pump that, mm-hmm. that pumps water through this tube. And inside the tube, there's a heating element. The heating element is at a very specific temperature, a precise run, temperature. Run by a computer, right. a very small computer. There's a little computer chip, essentially, mm-hmm. a microcontroller, if you will, mm-hmm. that uh, is, it's got a thermometer based in that or a thermostat where it's, it's set so that it keeps that water at a very precise temperature. And it, it all depends on what you're cooking, right? There's not like, you know, you don't just turn this on and it goes. But what happens is this water will very, at this temperature, will slowly cook whatever it is you put in there. And it's a very, the reason why it's such a slow process is so that it preserves all of that tissue inside whatever the food is so that it doesn't become tough or dried out. Like mm-hmm. if you have ever cooked a steak and thought, well, the flavor's great, but it's really chewy. Some of that material starts to stiffen as you cook it. This idea is that you're using a much more gentle process, so uh, that you can you can cook food at a at a lower temperature for longer. Right. Which um which the same way that if you've ever had a really tender uh, barbecue or roast, mm-hmm. it's it's the same principle except you know you're sealing it in a baggie and putting it in this water bath. You you wouldn't want to just drop a steak into the water bath. That would no. Not, then you get like good. steak soup. Yeah. Different yeah. different thing. But uh, then what the idea usually is that after you've cooked it this way, you then cut the bag open and then sear the meat. If it's a if it's a meat dish like a steak uh-huh. to, to to get a nice caramel process going yeah, on the outside. Yeah, so that way you could get that nice uh, seared exterior mm-hmm. and still have that tender juicy interior. Mm-hmm. Uh sous vide machines are pretty cool. I mean, not like literally cool. They're actually they're, they're quite warm. A little bit warm. But yeah. uh yeah, they're it's a pretty neat thing. And so often uh, another thing you would might you might want if you're getting a a sous vide machine uh, is a vacuum machine, mm-hmm. which of course is a sealer that just pulls air from plastic bags and then seals them. And uh, that can be used for preparing stuff for sous vide, like a cut of meat, mm-hmm. or you might use it to intensify flavors. So, for example, you might put fruits or vegetables in a vacuum machine along with some flavored oil. And when you pull all that air out, fruits, some fruits and vegetables have lots and lots of air in them. So when you pull that air out, that vacuum ends up pulling the oil into the fruit itself right? and infuses the fruit or vegetables with the flavor of whatever oil you're using. So that can make these super intense flavors. It's one of those things that, um, you know, I've had some some of these sorts of dishes and it is pretty phenomenal. I mean, when you have something like this, your eyes just kind of pop open like, wow, that's that's an intense flavor that you've created there. And at first you think, where did you buy these strawberries? <laughs> Um, um, yeah, neat it, stuff. It, it also the the process of vacuum sealing allows that food to then cook at a lower temperature. Um, yeah, because of physics, uh, because <laughs> because science, because because when things are are at um are at a very low pressure, mm-hmm. um the 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 boiling point changes. Yeah, so so you can you can retain more of the um texture or color or nutrients or tenderness of a given piece of food, um uh by not needing to use as intense a heating process on it. Yep, and then um. There's another tool. This is this is getting more into the science, less of the tech that uh, that molecular gastronomists like to use. This tool is liquid nitrogen. Yeah. <laughs> yep. The same stuff we use to to help cool, uh, uh, like superconductors down. Mm-hmm. Um, because because it uh, uh it sits at a, a negative 321 degrees Fahrenheit, which is negative 196 degrees centigrade. That's uh that's pretty cold. Yeah, it's um cold enough so that it would cause you serious injury if you were to put yourself in contact with it. Also, not a great idea to dump a bunch of this in a pool. 
No, 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 no. Very unsafe due to the fact that you will probably suffocate somebody. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the 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 gas that's given off is heavier than uh, oxygen, so it displaces oxygen, and then you can't breathe it. Uh, at least not for long, and then you can asphyxiate. At least not usefully. Yeah. yeah, yeah. In fact, there was the reason why we even bring this up is that there was a uh, promotional event, and I think it was Mexico. And I want to say it was Jägermeister that did this. And um, and as part of the promotional event, they dumped a whole bunch of liquid nitrogen into a pool so that you get this cool smoke effect. Sure. But there were people in the pool, and they ended up passing out because they couldn't yeah. breathe because they the the oxygen had been displaced. So this is dangerous stuff on multiple levels. Be really, really careful. With However, it. it's really fun to make ice cream with. Yeah. And also it can let you do stuff so that you can work with materials in a way that you couldn't work with them otherwise. For example, if you were to take peanuts and grind them up, normally you would get peanut butter. Like that's, you know, you, all the oils and everything would combine so that you, that's what you get. You mm-hmm. end up with peanut, peanut butter. But if you use liquid nitrogen, you to could actually shatter a peanut. You could actually, yeah, you could grind it up and create peanut powder. So you could use the peanut powder and stuff instead of peanut. You know, if that's if you needed a powdered peanut, that's what that's how you could do it. Huh. So there's certain materials that using liquid nitrogen will let you work with them in ways you couldn't work with them before. Uh, speaking of getting stuff cold, I hear that you have some sort of weird alternate reality version of a griddle to talk about. Bizarro griddle. No, it's called anti-griddle. Um this this is made by uh by a company called PolyScience that does that does a few a few interesting uh pieces of equipment like this. Um it um it pumps a refrigerant through a compressor to remove the heat from a steel surface. Um the same way that that if you if you listen to our refrigeration episode, um it's the same way that a refrigerator works but just on on a small steel surface. Uh, instead of pumping that air through a uh, through a box, so it will very quickly reach negative thirty degrees Fahrenheit or negative thirty four degrees centigrade. That's pretty chilly. So you can use it to freeze the surface of stuff uh, instantly, essentially. Mm-hmm. So this, this while, is... while leaving that fun creamy center that yeah. we were talking yeah. about. Yeah. So I, I've seen uh, I saw a thing where they were using this for uh, again, sort of like a strawberry type dessert where it was freezing the outside, keeping the inside uh, unfrozen. So that way you have this uh, interesting effect when you mm-hmm. actually bite into it. A lot of this is all about trying to create an experience you would not otherwise have uh, if you were to prepare the food in a more traditional way. Right, um, right. So it's kind of thinking outside the box in a way, or outside the ice box, if you prefer. <laughs> Goodness my gracious. Um, uh, another one that's made by PolyScience is, um, is a, a smoke gun. I believe it's a, the, the proprietary term is a smoking gun. And this is... <sighs> oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, this, this is essentially um, a pipe. Gotcha. That, that has a pump attached. And um, it will draw smoke from from wood chips that you that you light in the little basket of the pipe through a tube. As the smoke is drawn through the tube, it's cooled. So by the time it gets to whatever food item you're applying it to, um, it's it's a cold smoke that still infuses a lot of flavor. Interesting. Into whatever it hits. Um, I've I've personally seen this applied to um to a, a bottle of of nice whiskey. Which which gives it an extremely lovely smoky flavor. I wouldn't know. No. Um, yeah, my wife would hate that. She hates smoky flavors. Oh. Uh, so uh, also, I wanted to talk a little bit. We're we're kind of wrapping up here with our discussion O Tech, but uh, I wanted to talk about a, a design competition. 
that has gone oh, on for right. a while, mm-hmm. the Electrolux Design Lab. It's a contest that challenges designers to come up with innovative consumer products and technologies. And a lot of that, not all of it, but a lot of it has to do with kitchens and uh, you know cooking and, and the kitchens of tomorrow. And many of these designs end up looking like something you would see at Epcot down at Disney. You know, one of those things where you're like, wow, yeah, this this looks very futuristic. I can't imagine it ever actually becoming part of someone's kitchen. That is wildly kitchen. impractical. <laughs> but, uh, but super awesome, mm-hmm. right? Like jetpacks. Um, kind of the, these are the, the jetpacks of the kitchen. Uh, <laughs> and some of them, you know, you may end up finding some of these entering into the kitchens of tomorrow, but perhaps not in the exact implementation of the design competition. But one 2013 semifinalist uh, is the Global Chef, which is described as a smart bowl with a projector. A smart bowl. Yeah, so it's a it's a, a bowl that can somehow, through means uh, undescribed in the 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 material I read, detect the ingredients that are placed inside of it. So let's say that you are preparing something like I don't know. Let's let's go simple. You're just preparing fajitas. And you've got all your chopped vegetables and you put them inside this bowl. And the bowl is able to detect exactly what you are cooking with. It can then go through a uh, essentially a social network that would be designed specifically for this type of, of uh, equipment and look for other people who are cooking with similar ingredients. And then you could uh, – the pro- the projector in the bowl would project a screen – an image of other people who are cooking with these ingredients and you could have a social interaction with them. As you're cooking and say, hey, I see you're cooking with such and such. What are you making? Here's what I'm making. Here's how I make it. How do you make what you are making? Dinner roulette. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, exactly. Dinner roulette. It's it's supposed to be a way of making cooking a social event again, saying that more and more people are having kind of a solo experience, particularly you know younger people mm-hmm. of college age or whatever, and that Cooking can be a very rewarding social experience, but for a lot of people, it just doesn't work in their lifestyles. So this would help uh, facilitate that, which is kind of an interesting experience and idea. Don't know how practical it is. Don't know that this is ever going to actually become a real product. Uh, I never really thought of getting a smart bowl Uh but I've thought of plenty of other smart appliances and sure. I've seen, I've seen them at CES. So maybe one day I'll see this at CES. Maybe. Wouldn't surprise me, really. Uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, so that's kind of a rundown on some of the, the the gadgets and gimmicks of the kitchen. Did you have any others you wanted to mention before we wrap up? No, no, I did not. Um, no, I mean, I mean, of course, there are many, many, many other gadgets out there. And yeah. um, and, and like we said, cooking itself is is science. And so um, so there are countless processes and all kinds of innovators in the field yeah, doing had, really fun, interesting stuff. We could have done a full episode just on Ron Popeil. And maybe one day we will. I know that Chris and I mentioned Popeil in a previous episode. I cannot remember what it was for. I do remember talking about the pocket fisherman. But um but yeah. Right in and jog our memory. Yeah, there's some there's some crazy gadgets out there. Maybe one day we'll just talk about wacky kitchen gadgets. Yeah. Like some of the some of the stuff that is wildly impractical and yet kind of awesome. Uh, but until then, if you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, you should write us and let us know. Our address is techstuff at discovery.com. Or find us on our social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. And you can find us there with the handle techstuffhsw. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.